Senseless Chaos Cast, the Chaos Community Podcast, where we share use cases and experiences with measuring open source community health, elevating conversations about metrics, analytics, and software from the Community Health Analytics Open Source Software or Short Chaos Project to wherever you like to listen. Welcome to this episode. This podcast is sponsored by our friends at Sustain, a community of open source enthusiasts and professionals that care about the future of open source. Learn more at sustainoss.org. On the panel today is Venia Logan. Hello, happy to be back. And myself, Georg Link. Hi everyone, good to be with you again. And I'm super excited to have Richard Millington with us today as our guest. Hi, Richard. Hey, how's it going? It's going excellent. Summer's here and plenty of things to do outside. So, but we are here to talk about communities and metrics. And I know you have a really decade and more long history with communities. Would you like to introduce yourself and share how you got to this place? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Thank you so much for inviting me onto your podcast. So I run a consultancy called FeverB. And what FeverB essentially does, and there's eight of us in the team now, is we help organizations, usually some of the largest organizations in the world today, develop better online communities. And we do that by understanding the psychology of what members want, understanding the community experience, how to make sure they have the best experience that they can possibly have. And then we also look at the data and the metrics and the business side. And what we've found consistently over the last, how long, around 14 years now, is that most communities are being held accountable to goals which are best irrelevant and at worst, taking them down completely the wrong path. And part of our mission for at least the last few years, at least, is to change that. Because when you're held accountable to goals you can't achieve, you're set up to fail. When you're held accountable for goals or metrics that are outside of your field of influence, you're being set up to fail. So part of what I'm really hoping to get across today are some of the things we've learned from that. And also to share some examples of how to do this, hopefully, a lot better as well. How did you get into this field of communities in the first place? What got you started? <laughs> There's a long story in the short story. So let's go with the short story. Online gaming. A lot of people in the online community space today came through online gaming. Because when you're around 15 or 16 and you suddenly get this high-speed internet connection, you realize you have access to all of the information in the world and you can connect with people in online communities around the world. And then in gaming, you can connect with them and shoot at them. And when you're 15 or 16, that's a very exciting thing to be doing. So I got into the online gaming scene, building online communities around different games that are out there. And that suddenly just grew and expanded. And then I had a year out in the industry, a marketing company, because I did a marketing degree. And then we had a client that wanted an online community. And that's when it just suddenly clicked. When suddenly it kind of realized, hey, it's not just gaming sites that need online communities. There's all kinds of different brands that need them. 
And around that time, right after university, I got an internship with a band named Steph Godin, who some people might know, a very well-known marketer. And that really helped in so many ways of understanding how communities work, how marketing works, how organizations think. And then it just grew and expanded from there. So I launched a blog in 2008. And my idea was just to share a couple of lessons I'm learning about online communities. And then amazingly, people began to read the blog and I'm still humbled by that today. And that began at, you know, 10 people, then 20, and then 40, and then 80. And over the years, very, very slowly, but very, very surely, the audience just grew and grew. And I began getting people reaching out to me, asking for help with their online communities. And it just continued growing from there, really. And, and the caliber of the companies are just being amazing. We're being so lucky over the last five to 10 years to work with companies like Apple, Facebook, SAP, Okta, Oracle. Like all of these companies I've dreamed of working with are being fortunate enough to work with. So that's kind of the story. And it's been, there's been ups and downs. There's been a constant journey of learning new things. And our processes for building communities have changed so much during that time. But we're still learning. Like everyone else in this field, we're still learning and trying to improve how we would go about it. And ideally trying to provide as much value and support to our clients and the industry as we possibly can. Yeah. And kind of starting my own thing in gaming and academics, because I kind of came from studying Guild Wars 2 and how online MMORPGs builds a shared reality or a shared understanding with each other. I definitely agree with you during my time at Digital Marketer. Like there was this notion of like marketing has all of these clients who could totally benefit from using a community-led strategy in order to go in. So I do have a question as to how that conversation started with Seth and with a lot of your clients. How did you move them into this headspace of being community first and what a community could do for your brands? Yeah, I don't have to persuade them really. Like a lot of my work isn't persuading clients because usually most people that contact us have been reading the blog for a long time and you've been reading the blog for a long time. Or if you read like the books that are published, then I'm in this really fortunate position where they're already in that process. Like they have a community or they know they want a community. And so sometimes we come in and we help with the stakeholder benefits at the broader level. And then we kind of highlight some of the advantages of communities, some of the disadvantages and try and help them make an informed decision. But we don't have to do too much on the persuasion side because by the time someone reaches out to us, they're already pretty persuaded that they need a community. When it does come up is with stakeholders in an organization who aren't convinced or against the community. And then we try to understand where that comes from. Is it a lack of knowledge of community? In which case we can help provide that knowledge, build that relationship and make that work. Is it because they consider the community a threat or they've had bad experiences in the past? In which case we can learn from that, make sure we avoid that and give them some assurance. Or is it because they just don't see the point? In which case we can then look at the benefits of a community. We can highlight what they're looking to achieve. We can see how a community can help. And what we often do is host a, a workshop like really with clients, we try to host a workshop at some point where all of the stakeholders that are involved, they highlight what their challenges are. Then we look at what members need from the research that we've done there. And there's this process where we kind of see where those two axes align, where the benefits appear. 
And we can include this in the, in the show note, the post we did about this, but you can see exactly what are the priorities for a community. And then everyone's had their input. Everyone's had their say. When people are against community, there's usually a reason for it. And instead of just trying to steamroll over them, it's important to really understand why, like really understand why. Yeah, that kind of brings up in my head, like this might be a little bit of a weird example, but it's kind of like anti-vax movements and stuff like that. A lot of mothers have very, very genuine concerns. There were some medical anthropology research that happened around the anti-vax movement and what the origin of most people's participation in anti-vax movements were. And they were by and large doctors or medical professionals dismissal of very genuine, very considerate concerns about a movement that is in most cases very, very, very good, but they were just lacking not just some educational aspects, but also the emotional empathy necessary to bring them along in that decision. And I feel like it's significantly less political, but also still really critical to recognize that we're in this space of community-led. It's completely different now in a post-COVID world. But that does not mean that we are allowed to dismiss a lot of C-suites concerns when it does come to community. I've been in serious situations talking to like someone who manages a community and they'll be like, oh, my boss or my company are idiots. They don't get it. They don't understand what the point of community is. And that's such a negative attitude to have. And it's a negative attitude to have because what you're really saying is, I don't understand the organization. I don't understand my stakeholders. I haven't built relationships with them to understand why they don't support this. And I think the other mistake that happens is that people don't really take the time to figure out what is the information that they need to change their mind. It's not data. Like there's this kind of myth that if you just had the perfect data, then people will be persuaded. And I think what we've seen over the last couple of years in pretty much every sphere of life is that's not the case. You don't persuade people with data. You can convince them, but you don't persuade people with data. You persuade people by appealing to that emotional appeal. People hold the views of their tribe. You know, if their tribe are against it, then they are against it. That's where we get most of our views from. And so if you can make them feel a part of a different tribe, that's where the big win comes from not changing their mind through facts or data, but making them feel like they're part of a different tribe, a tribe of people that are forward-looking, a tribe of people that get it. Community-led, I mean, I'm not completely on board with that term, but there's like something in there about having a movement or a tribe that people want to identify with, so they're willing to let go of their existing identity to accept that. So I think you're right. There's definitely something in there. I'm always just a bit mindful of thinking that data is the solution because you can present the best data, but if people still aren't persuaded, then they're just going to say that the data is bunk in some form. They're going to say it's a hoax. They're going to say it doesn't represent their situation, but making them feel a part of the right kind of tribe, that can be a big win. I'm thinking about how that relates to open source communities. In open source, I have a few thoughts here. One is you said, if we need to have the right goals if they want to foster community and in open source, sometimes community just happens because everyone gathers together around the technology and the community forms without intention. In the last decade, we have seen more and more 
companies getting really engaged in open source and taking a more structured and planned approach where now those concerns come in that you just mentioned with, we need to understand both the community and the organization and find that intersection and the right goals for that. So I was just thinking about applying that. And then one thing I'm stuck on is this difference between convince and persuade. Maybe we can go into that for a moment. So I'll give you an example. I spoke about this very topic at an event in Valencia years ago. And I remember asking a question like, how many of you believe that climate change is a real man-made threat to this planet? And almost everyone raised their hands. Almost everyone raised their hands. They were convinced. And then I asked them, how many of you flew to this event here today? About half the room raised their hand. So they're convinced that it's true, but they're not persuaded to change their behavior. So you convince people when they're already leaning in that direction. So facts can be useful to solidify a view, but persuading is where you change their behavior. Persuading is where you change your viewpoint on a particular topic. I can be convinced of many things, but I might not be persuaded to take action on it. And I think that's the difference. Convincing someone is different from persuading. Persuading is always about that emotional appeal, that emotional level. Convincing is more that kind of factual changing your opinion. And maybe that's what it is, the difference between an opinion and behavior. But I, that's how I see the difference. Yeah. And it kind of reminds me as you talk more about it, about the wicked problems mindset, which is this notion that you can put a whole bunch of experts into a room to solve a plain problem, no matter how complex it is. But if you put them in a room and you give them enough time, they will come out and say, here's the plan for fixing LA's traffic grid. And then you take that plan and you put it into a wicked problems issue where it doesn't matter if there is a solution, so to speak. It doesn't matter if this off-ramp goes through this neighborhood because by and large, people's perspectives, opinions, and values will conflict with what they know to be true. So it's this notion of, yeah, it is better for society. I'm not saying that it isn't, but I also need to protect my own. So it's like this severe conflict and there's a difference between convincing someone that something is a good idea versus convincing them to embody it. I can give you an example of how I've persuaded organizations to support a community. And this is an example I've used maybe four or five times successfully. So there being organizations that are convinced that launching a community is a good idea. They're just not persuaded to fully back it or resource it. And I've tried all sorts of facts to convince them, but the most powerful thing that got them to actually take action is when I say, look, this is what your competitors are doing. Your competitors are pulling ahead of you. And suddenly that hits you in like an emotive level. You know, that fear of falling behind, it hits you at an emotive level. And so suddenly they're persuaded to take action. And it's surprising how that fear of loss, especially like really drives behavior at that level. And so I think that's a very good example of convincing versus persuading. Convincing, yeah, community is a good idea. Here's a bunch of great examples. But persuading, look, your competitors are taking the lead here. You're being left behind. This reflects badly upon you. I mean, like, I wouldn't say it in exactly those terms, but yeah, it's powerful. It works. And I think in open source, we have reached that level where we've seen a lot of companies are really starting to invest in more and more into open source communities. 
So the divide right now that I'm seeing, a lot of companies are using open source and the movement is to convince more and more to also give back and participate back into open source through fostering their own communities or joining existing communities. And so I know you're involved, Richard, in really building communities. I was wondering if you have some ideas for this other scenario where it's not your community, but you are joining an existing community, company identifying, hey, this technology is really important to me and I need to be part of it because I need to know what the evolution is, where the innovation is going. I need to influence the roadmap for my own goals. But then how do you set the right goals for that community engagement at the organization level? Since you're not the one controlling the community, you have to find your own way. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, I can talk about it more generic level. Like how do we set goals for community or for existing communities that are out there today? And I think the mistake that's most often made is that a community professional will sit down at a desk with a clean sheet of paper or whatever, and then say, okay, the goals of my community are going to be X, Y, and Z. And they write down those goals. And then they spend the next months or maybe years of their lives trying to persuade their colleagues that these goals are important to them. And it's a losing battle. The far, 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 far better way of doing this is to figure out what your colleagues already care about and adopt those goals for the community. And we find with almost any department within an organization, there's benefits from engaging with a community. If you're in marketing, then communities are an eternal spring of great case studies and testimonials and feedback on your ideas and nurturing advocates. If you're in sales, communities are a great tool for generating leads. If you're in PR, then Participating in a community can position you on the cutting edge and you can do press releases about it. But you can't begin with what you want. I always feel for gold to really work, you have to begin with what they want and then highlight how the community can support that goal. So whether that's open source, whether that's any other kind of community out there today, I think if you really begin with the goals of the organization and orientate your work around that, you're going to be far more successful than coming up with goals yourself and then trying to persuade everyone else how important they are. Does that make sense? I find that interesting because it makes logical sense for me how to convince the organization that, hey, we need to invest in the community. And it makes sense to me also when it's our community, we control the channels, we can shape it, that we can align the goals. Where I would push back on that a little bit is, as an organization, if I'm joining an existing community, I cannot reshape it to my own design. I am facing a community of other competitors and companies and foundations that have the reins once happening, and I'm coming new into this. I may have found out what are our goals for engaging in the community, but how do I do it authentically without overriding what everyone else is already doing in the community? So here's how we approach it. I kind of touched upon it before. So imagine a graph with two axes on it, like a horizontal and a vertical axis. And on one axis, you put down what members want. And on the other, you put down the goals of the organization. And then you figure out 
what would you have to do or what would members have to do to achieve that goal? What is their behavior? What does that look like? So for example, it might be outside of open source. It might be, you know, reducing support costs. It might be building a positive reputation with key influencers in the industry, nurturing advocates. It might be positioning the community as a thought leader within that particular field. But then you try and translate it as like, how much do members want to do this? And how much does the organization want this? And you find the overlap between two. The mistake of pretty much anyone in community is trying to get members to change their behavior in a way that they have no interest in doing. And it happens all the time. Organizations, and I think everyone, drastically overestimates their ability to change the behavior of their audience, like in a massive way. They think they can come to a community and change their behavior. And that doesn't work. Members generally don't change their behavior. What you can do is to go to a community figure out what members want to achieve in that community and help them achieve those things. That might be by providing initial support, providing resources. I mean, there's companies that have done this extremely well. I mean, you know this better than I do, but companies that have done this extremely well over the years that have entered an open source space and supported it with resources, hosting events, activities, you know, providing funding for top members. There's a lot of communities that have done that. Even if you think at a very generic level, like Wikipedia, for example, Wikimedia, they have grants that they give to people in this space. They want to host their hackathons, and I'm sure that exists in other sectors as well. I mean, that's a way to support a community, to be out there, to be building relationships with all the top people in that field. And I think that's an incredible win. I think being out there is an incredible win, but you always have to begin with what are members already doing? What do they want to do? And how can you step in and use your resources to help fulfill that gap or close that gap? While open source software today is powering critical infrastructure, the open source ecosystem as a whole is rapidly changing, facing challenges for governance, maintenance, maintainer burnout, funding, marketing, and more. Are you concerned about these things for your open source software too? Well, in the sustained community, we discuss these challenges and share solutions for how to sustain open source in the long haul. We meet once per year in person, and the rest of the time we keep the fire burning in our discourse forum. Join our conversations at sustainoss.org and sustainoss on Twitter. I kind of feel like one of the primary things that came up as a result of that question was this notion of if you are a community member, not by default empowered as a key stakeholder, i.e. you're not a part of the organization who's entering into the community. You're a community member looking to ensure that community goals are aligned with business goals, which as I understood it was there, is this notion of setting precedents and then building momentum. So you are setting a precedent in this community to say, hey, I think that we should do a thing. And if you can't set that precedent, you cannot then go on to build momentum for it. And if you do try, then you are building momentum against a brick wall. Yeah, I agree. I think there's always a challenge when an organization goes into a community with a short-term goal, and that doesn't tend to work because they go up against the current trends of what members are doing, what they want, and it comes across as quite pushy. It comes across as quite rude and it provokes a backlash. And it's very hard to recover from a negative backlash. I can think of companies like Mozilla, for example, 
who haven't done well over the last couple of years because their members didn't like them very much. And I think it's very hard to go into a space where you're not well known, you don't have a strong reputation and to try and get a short-term benefit from it. You benefit most when you figure out how to help as many people in that community get what they want. That's how you get what you want. And I think that's true in life and everywhere else as well. But I think that's the lesson that organizations need to keep very close to their chest when they're engaging in any kind of community that they don't own and even those that they do own as well. All really, really wonderful and important things to remember going into a community and what these goals are actually going to be, what the purpose of the organization is, what the community manager is trying to do and what the community's goals are. And recently you published a blog and truth be told, you published an entire book about it, about trying to find the alignment between the community and the business goals and how in many cases, the goals that you initially think are critical to your success are not actually critical. How do you go about sussing out what actually matters for your community and finding the right goals? The way we go about this is often completely the wrong approach. So typically, and again, I won't go with an open source example because it's not my field of expertise, but I'll try and walk you through the process that we typically think about. So a typical goal might be to improve the customer experience. And then through the, and that will come through discussions with stakeholders by looking at what the options are. And then we'll figure out what are the key factors that do improve a customer experience. Like if we interview members, what do we uncover from that? And we then might find objectives like improving the number of answered questions per month or improving member satisfaction. One of the things we do to discover that is if we look at the data and data is such an amazing ally for everyone building a community. And it's tragic that so much of it is going to waste right now. But we look at the data of a customer experience score and that might be um, task completion rate or it might be customer satisfaction or net promoter score, something along those lines. And we look to see what factors correlate most closely with that. And we might find that it might be improving, like I said, the number of answered questions per month, improving the member satisfaction per month. And then we can think, okay, what are the very specific things that drive those kind of results? And again, the more we speak to members, the more we look at the data, then we can start to see some critical things. So in the example of the blog post you mentioned, we found that making it easier to ask questions had a big impact. We found that escalating unanswered questions had a big impact upon improving the number of answered questions. We found, for example, in, in terms of improving member satisfaction, the things that really correlated strongly were things like hosting events. The number of events that people intended was a big factor. The number of MVPs or top members in that community was a big factor. The average time to first response was a big factor. And so we look at the data and we come up with a rough theory of what we think is happening. And then we really drill deep into the data to see like which of these are validated and which not. And there's a lot of very technical tools like multiple regression analysis that we can do. But fundamentally, we look to see what the correlations are. And then we start building out a strategy from that. Like what are the things that really move the needle in achieving those objectives? And then all these things drill down into tactics. So if we're looking at hosting better, better events, there's a very specific set of tactics that we might be doing to achieve that. If it's looking like increasing the number of MVPs in that community, 
then we might do a better job of retaining those that we have, look and see who are drifting away and reaching out to new ones. If it's escalating on our answered questions, then we might put in automated escalation processes in place for that. If it's making it easier to ask questions, so we might have a clearer call to action. We might have clear nudges that we can introduce for that. We might send out a prompt to someone that has just joined that community for the first time, highlighting exactly the kinds of questions that they might want to ask in that community. So it's all data-driven, I think, or at least I hope, one of the unique things we bring to our clients is having that data-driven approach. And so that's the approach. We figure out what the goal is. We figure out what correlates very closely with that, looking at the data, and then we work down from there. And selling the exact targets is another question we can get into if you want, but hopefully this gives you a rough overview of how we approach it. Wow, that is a lot to unpack there. Lots of metrics, lots of ideas, lots of goals, lots of strategies, lots of tactics. So when it comes to open source communities, people who are coming together to build a shared system or create something new, a lot of people tend to get lost in the miasma about what goals are necessary to set. Where do you suggest that they begin? So I think the first thing I would do would be to try and facilitate a workshop where everyone could give their opinion on what the goals of the community should be. And having a live workshop in Mural or any of the whiteboarding tools that are out there is really useful if you can facilitate it well. Because then everyone, you can give people a certain number of dots and they can put it next to the goals that they think are most important to them. So say if there's like 10 different goals and everyone gets like five dots and they can put them all on one goal if they want, or they can split them out a little. Everyone gets their say and you can highlight which goals matter to most members. That's a good way of establishing that good top level, superordinate goal. You need someone with the power to facilitate that, but that's a good level to achieve that goal. And once you have that goal in place, I would try and facilitate a discussion or look at the data, really highlighting what are the factors that drive that goal? What are the things that tend to lead the uh, results here? And this is where the data can get really interesting because you can see what is correlated quite closely with that in the past. And then you can forecast what that looks like. And then once you know what the forecast is for the future, looking at past trends, then you can highlight what reasonable targets are. And once you have targets, then you can break it down into tactics and then you can start deciding between yourselves who's going to do what, who's going to do what tactic on what day, sell it in a calendar item or use Asana or use whatever tool that makes sense to you. But you need a strong facilitator in place. And I think that can be a challenge when it's a decentralized approach. But I'm hoping enough people can get together to make that work because it really can move the needle in a major way. Have you ever done a workshop like this in an asynchronous way over mailing lists or Slack or something where you didn't require everyone to be in the same room and at the same time for the workshop? Not that I can think of, but there's no major barrier that prevents it. Like if you had a short video linked to a mural board or whatever tool that people want to use and then highlighted the instructions. I mean, even with a survey, you could do it. Like with ranked options, I mean, that's definitely possible as well. So workshop is my preference because it helps to have everyone engaged at the same time. But there's no essential reason why it has to be a workshop. Like you can do it in an asynchronous way as well. Wow. 
Yeah, I think it's a really, really great place to start with a workshop and endorse it and voting on all of your goals, which just sounds like the right kind of chaos to me. And I did kind of want to touch on one major element that you had, which was how you're setting your targets based upon prior data or data that already exists. So you're looking at current trends, current community status in order to establish better targets. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, I want to talk a lot more about this. I wish we had a lot more time. So there's a problem in goal setting in community and a lot of other fields to what I've seen. And the problem is plucking metrics from thin air. And what people look at, they look at the current level of, of whatever target that they're aiming for. Let's say number of questions, number of answers, whatever engagement metric or ROI metric it is. And then they'll set an arbitrary number to increase it. 5%, 10%, 50%. And they have absolutely no idea if that's realistic or not. It's just a nice round number. And so they go for it. But if you look at the trend, you have to know if that number is going up or down in the first place. Like you need data to know if that number is going up or down. Because if you're saying you want a 5% improvement and it's being increasing by 20% per year, well, what you're saying is that we're going to have a worse result. I mean, the number will be higher for sure but you're going to have a decrease in what you otherwise would have had. What you might say, if you know it's being increasing by 20% year on year, is that, hey, we want 25% increase like next year. So there's a difference between an increase and an improvement. And that's what we're talking about. An improvement is when you're going above the forecasted metric. But an increase is simply the number going up or down. And likewise, let's say there's a metric that matters a lot to you and it's been declining by 20% over the last couple of years then reducing that to 5%, that's a win. That's an improvement because it's changing the behavior of where it's likely to go. And so what we try to do is look at a graph of these numbers and see what the trend line is, and then make a estimate that is above or below that trend line. Ideally, what we do is set usually around 10 to 20% either side of that metric and say, if you're above that line, you're doing well. If you're below that line, you're doing badly. And if you're in the middle, that's kind of where you should be. So this is more similar to a confidence interval you get in statistics. So now we know what success looks like, we know what failure looks like, and we know what okay is. And then you have a reasonable set of metrics and targets that you can aim for. But please, please, please stop plucking numbers from the sky. Like it doesn't help anyone. I know everyone needs targets and everyone wants them, but Plugging numbers from thin air doesn't make sense. Looking at the trend line, looking to see where it's going, and then using that to forecast what good metrics are, good targets are, that doesn't make sense. Yeah, and I know that we're wrapping up the episode, but I just wanted to say, I think that this is advice well taken, well thought, well proven, not necessarily well implemented. I have definitely found and reflected in that a lot of people tend to shy away from using benchmarking in order to forecast mm. on longer terms because they're like, well, my community completely changed in the past three to six months. And I'm like, well, maybe it's a problem that your community is so erratic that data is expiring that quickly. And being able to benchmark that data and say, here's where we stand now. Yeah, this number came out of nowhere. Yeah, that's where it is. Then look back and look forward to say, all right, where's this going to go 
is going to create a much better forecast off of that benchmark than anything just like, where are we in this quarter? Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's also a slight trend of community professionals and community folks treating data in a negative way where they always think like, I think we should be held accountable for the results of our work. If we're working with a client, I want that data in place so I can prove that we did a tremendous job for them. And I think everyone wants that because what I'm advocating and what has worked really well is when people have metrics that are based upon clear targets that are achievable, that are based upon trend lines. And so when you do a great job, you can prove it. And someone doesn't just raise the bar because they suddenly realize that the metrics or the target they gave you was too low in the first place. So yeah, I completely agree. I think we should be held accountable. I think this is a good thing. We do want this kind of data. We do want these kinds of, of targets in place. So we are coming up to the end of the episode. Uh, Richard, I know you have a wealth of information out there. And for people who want to get in touch with you and learn more, where do you recommend they find you? Yeah, I think the best place would be uh, feverbee.com. And by the way, B is the worst name for a company ever because whenever you have to spell it, it's like F-E-V-E-R-B-E. Like it's really, and I don't know the Greek alphabet. So if I'm on the phone, it's like E for elephant, V for Volkswagen. Like I don't know it and it just sounds ridiculous. But if you go to <laughs> feverbee.com, hopefully that'll be in the show notes. That's the best place to learn. At Rich Millington on Twitter and Richard at feverbee.com should work as well. Excellent. Yes, we will put that all in the show notes. Thank you. And we always like to end our episodes with value ads, where we share something that has brought value, joy, or meaning to our life recently. And for me, today is July the 5th. And so yesterday was the Independence Day, July 4th here in the United States. And we got together as a family. And for this year, we are renting a house that has a pool and it was the highlight of the party and the kids, everyone who was here from our family, they were so involved with the pool. The older ones wanted to go do firework in front of the house, but the younger ones, especially like three, four years old, they didn't want to leave the pool. <laughs> it was just great. I'm going to add to that is that I'm glad that the slaughter of my ancestors brings you such joy. I don't know how to respond to that. <laughs> <laughs> we had a joke happen recently where everyone just kind of congratulated each other. Happy treason day. Yeah. I mean, enjoy your rebellion whilst it lasts, you know. Something tells me you're not the biggest fan of Hamilton, the musical area. You know what? I absolutely love that show. But when that show comes to the UK, you kind of have to understand that Hamilton isn't like a very well-known figure here. So we're watching it and like, we don't know how it ends. Like we genuinely don't, like we don't cover that period of American history in depth. So when he dies, I'm sorry, there's a spoiler alert in there. But when he dies, we're like, wow, did they just kill off the main star? It's an actual shock to us. So honestly, I thought the musical was fantastic. But yeah, it was a surprise. It's uh, fair to have the historical perspective as well. So do you have any value adds? You know, for the best part of a year, I've been in this epic battle with my girlfriend's cat. And it got to a point where one of us wasn't going to survive. However, she went away for a week. And so it's just me and the cat for an entire week. And 
It took a while, but I cracked the cat. I mean, like she loves me now. It turns out when I'm the sole provider of food, cats begin to like me. Or at least, you know, she doesn't. She <laughs> recognizes my right to exist would be a nice way of putting it. So that has brought me joy. And does that extend now beyond being the sole provider? I hope so. I mean, I feel like once you're being responsible for keeping that cat alive, I mean, the cat's name is Chloe. Once I've kept Chloe alive all by myself, when, you know, technically I didn't have to, I think that builds a bond. You know, I really feel it builds a bond. <laughs> I don't have to provide you basic sustenance, but I am. So be my friend. Exactly. I mean, I can bribe a cat with food. Yeah. My big value add, as longtime listeners on the podcast will probably know, I'm very into motorcycles. And recently in the course of my time with Socially Constructed, I've been really working a lot from different places, different cafes, different cities, different places all over the place. I've gotten a very privileged perspective on being a digital nomad. And for me, I have to say the importance of travel as a digital nomad did not actually hit me. Everyone's like, yeah, it's going to be great. You get to see the world, but you're also working at the same time. So it was a very special kind of event for me to choose to go somewhere without a computer over the course of this past 4th of July weekend. Wow. There's just a certain importance to travel outside of work. And I think a lot of digital nomads should spend some time leaving the laptop at home. That's great. I like that a lot. Yes, I love traveling. Well, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Richard. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. It was a blast. And yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing more of these podcasts in the future. Yes. And thank you, Venia, for being a panelist. Yeah, absolutely. I'm always happy to come by. Yeah. And thank you, dear listener, for joining us today. To stay up to date on future episodes, subscribe for free to this podcast on your favorite podcast app. Share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. And if you have ideas for future episode topics or would even like to come on as a guest, please email us, podcast at chaos.community. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Until next time, your chaos community.